Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, the people warning against the proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament are mostly focusing on the fact that it will not do anything to improve the lives of some of Australia's and the world's most benighted people. It's impossible to understate the horror endured by some Australian Aborigines, especially children. Last week, a Northern Territory nurse called Rachel Hale described on Channel 9 some of the things she'd seen while working in Indigenous communities in the Territory. She said, quote, I've seen a child aged four come in with anal warts. I've seen a girl as young as six with vaginal sores. Last year, there was a two-year-old who was raped, unquote. She said the kids who were on the streets of Alice Springs late at night were there because their home life was horrific and it was safer for them to run wild. The fact that they were terrorising people is hardly a surprise. These are kids who the rest of the country, one of the richest countries in the world, has left behind. As Hale says, these kids are filled with rage and hatred. And so would you be if you grew up in those circumstances. And yes, you can blame racism for that. If those kids were white, there would be foster homes ready to take them in. But because they are Indigenous, they are expected to fend for themselves, lest any well-meaning white people be accused by leftist virtue signalers of racism and stealing another generation. Finding solutions to this kind of problem should be easy in a nation like Australia. And it would be if the pragmatism, common sense and goodwill upon which this great country was mostly founded prevailed. But sadly, they don't. Those qualities are increasingly rare, at least among our ruling class. So instead, we have the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, one of the most contrived, pointless, divisive and idiotic ideas ever dreamed up in the corridors of power of our national parliament. You can tell how insincere it is just by its name. The Voice to Parliament. The Voice? This is the side of politics that wants to censor everyone they disagree with. Do you really think they would propose a voice for anything that didn't fit within their narrative? If you're wondering why so many major corporations and industry bodies are backing the voice, it's not because they care about Aboriginal welfare. It's because support for the voice 
curries favour with government ministers when their lobbyists come knocking for some sort of legislative assistance. The government itself is throwing a lazy $9.5 million of your money at a campaign that will, quote, focus on delivering facts about the constitution, referendums as the mechanism to change the constitution and information about the voice proposal. Anthony Albanese himself has said that the forthcoming referendum to enshrine the voice is, quote, an opportunity to unite the nation. Do you think he's in interested in contrary voices about this? Long before they have released any details about how the voice would work, who would sit on it and so on, you just know that it will be stacked with leftists who hate everything about Australia except the wealth they can extract from it as payment for whatever grievances they've managed to, managed to sound vaguely plausible. But that's just the start of it. My next guest, John Storey of the Institute of Public Affairs, has done considerable research into this and has concluded that the nation as a whole will be unrecognisable within a few years if this voice to parliament gets up. He joins me in a minute, but first, this week in the Senate, Pauline Hanson asked the Labor leader in the chamber, Penny Wong, if the government supported the idea of a separate state for Aborigines, whether Australians shared equal sovereignty over the nation and whether the government should support all Australians according to need, not race. On each question, Senator Hanson requested a simple yes or no answer. She got neither. Instead, Senator Wong accused her of being divisive. Divisive? Well, here's American leftist comedian Bill Maher identifying a genuine form of divisiveness between those who signal virtues and those who find hypocritical insincerity hilarious. Honestly, to all the people who start every public event now with one of those land acknowledgements where they say, I'm standing on land that was stolen from the proud indigenous people of the Chumash tribe, I say either give it back or shut the f up. <laughs> The voice to parliament proposal is not a feel-good idea that has emerged organically because we've had 15 years of apologies and a couple of decades of welcomes to country and now are looking for a new way to express our concerns for Indigenous people. Rather, it is one deliberate part of a long and methodical process. As historian Keith Winshuttle points out in the current edition of Quadrant magazine, this process began in April 1979 when the National Aboriginal Conference, which advised the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, endorsed the idea of sovereignty and treaty between the Commonwealth and the descendants of the original inhabitants. That was 44 years ago. Wynne Shuttle then points out that in 1988, the bicentenary of white settlement, Aboriginal leader Galawai Unipingu called on the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, to recognise, quote, our prior ownership, continued occupation and sovereignty, unquote. Wynne Shuttle goes on to chronologise the movement's increasing political and social momentum to the point where now the nation prepares to vote on a constitutional change to 
to do what exactly? Well, Windshuttle explains his interpretation. Quote, the real aim of constitutional change is not to arrive at some final settlement that will make the nation complete. They support recognition of Aborigines in the constitution simply as one more of the steps they need to take towards their real objectives, political autonomy, traditional law and values, and sovereignty over their own separate state or nation. Well, is it a coincidence that Senator Wong refused to say outright that the government did not support a separate state for Aborigines? Are you starting to feel that there is a lot about this that the government isn't telling you? My next guest, John Story of the Institute of Public Affairs said there, says there is plenty that is being left unsaid about The Voice. His research has found that there are serious parallels between where Australia is now and where our friends in New Zealand were a couple of decades ago. For a glimpse at where all this is heading if we let it happen, take a look at the divisive, catastrophic state New Zealand is in now. John Story joins me now. John, welcome. Hi Fred, thanks for having me on the show. John, how long ago was New Zealand at the stage where we are at now on the cusp of constitutional change based on racial identities? In 1975 in New Zealand, they set up a, an organisation called the Waitangi Tribunal. And this was to investigate alleged brief, uh, uh, grievances by Maori people of breaches of the Waitangi Treaty, an old treaty that was signed back in the 1840. And its, its role was to um, investigate these, these claims and make it, give advice to the New Zealand government. That may sound familiar to you. Um, 12 years later, in 1987, there was a, a, a big high court, uh, a big case, they don't, it's called the a Court of Appeal over there, that's their highest court in New Zealand, which said the Treaty of Waitangi is binding on the New Zealand government and they laid down various principles. Now, one of those principles was that if Maori people have a legitimate grievance, then um, the government must redress that grievance. And they said, if the Waitangi Tribunal finds that there has been a grievance, the government must, uh, must respond. So in the course of 12 years, this voice to parliament, if you like, a body set up to make recommendations to the government, went from being an advisory body to being strictly binding on the New Zealand government. And since then, it has pushed a, a, a very aggressive racial agenda. Yeah, that, well, there's one word that, that seems to encapsulate that agenda, and it's the word co-governance. Now, this is a new term for most people. Can you explain what it means and how widely it applies in New Zealand? Yes, well, that's partly attributable to the Waitangi Tribunal as well. One of the claims that came before it was that the uh, Maori people had never ceded sovereignty and that the wording of the Waitangi Tribunal, the Maori language version, meant something different to the English language version and the word sovereignty didn't mean the same thing. And they, and they held that no, Maori's never ceded sovereignty. So since then, there's been a concerted effort to create a joint sovereignty model, which has become known as co-governance. 
It's nothing more or less than trying to create two nations in one. How it, how it works on the ground is that all, all manner of government decisions require a Maori have half say and non-Maori have half say. And remember, Maori only make up 15% of the population, so it, it, it's, it's deeply unfair in that sense. But it creates this sense of division, um, uh, divisiveness, and it has created a, a, a real, a bit like the, you hear the term Aboriginal industry in Australia, that there are certain activists and politicians who really benefit from this divisiveness and get some, some cushy positions on these, on these boards and whatnot. That's happened in New Zealand. We spoke to a Maori woman, Casey Costello. She's an outspoken critic of New Zealand's policies in this space. And her description of New Zealand today is it's no longer a democracy, it's an ethno-state. So you're talking, what you're saying is that New Zealand developed and grew and prospered over the period of 150 years after the Treaty of Waitangi. And then suddenly this, this sort of disruptive movement emerged. How did it come, how did it come about? Why, why do these divisions emerge at a period when prosperity and freedom are, you know, at their greatest? Uh, uh, similar to Australia, there have been, uh, there were real mistakes and errors and injustices committed. The initial impetus for the Waitangi Tribunal was land rights, S similar to in Australia, you know, the, the, the Mabo case and, and native title, that there was certain land that, 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 that Maori Indigenous people had a, had a claim to, and it was dealing with those issues. And there was some sympathy. There was some genuine community sympathy that people had been dispossessed and that this was causing modern-day suffering for, for Maori people. But what you find, once you set up this infrastructure for investigating these grievances, it takes on a momentum of its own. People have a vested interest in finding new grievances so that they can maintain their position, extract more benefits from the government. So the early cases which were dealing with fishing rights and access to water and land entitlements quickly became things like um, we should have preferential access to the COVID-19 vaccine or Maori incarceration rates are higher than non-Maori incarceration rates. So the Waitangi Tribunal says the government must set fixed targets for reducing those rates. It's, it's really become an agenda of racial equity, which effectively means any discrepancy between Maori and non-Maori, it's the fault of the government, it's a breach of the Waitangi Treaty, and something must be done to, uh, to, to change it. And it feeds off this idea of original sin of, of nations that were settled in, you know, on top of Indigenous populations. But just coming back to the, the process of a, an advisory body becoming binding, the voice to parliament in Australia is being sold to us as essentially a powerless, technically powerless advisory panel. Now, you emphatically believe it won't remain that way for long. Can you explain how it will acquire powers that are not being uh, explained to us now? Well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. 
when we say it will have a veto or have some real power, there's a couple of ways and they may intermix with each other. So there's sort of moral power, legal power and constitutional power. So the moral power is that this voice will be, if they say, we don't like this law, we don't want X, Y, Z, we want you know, such, such and such, it's going to be a strong race card to play against any government who says, well, we don't agree with that. Now, we've just seen in the Northern Territory um, some flip-flopping between different governments over grog bans. Now, just imagine if The Voice had said, no, that's racist, we don't want grog bans in the Northern Territory. Is the government really going to go against it? The second one is legal power. And this is the one, the mask is already off. So what that means is this is it's called the voice to parliament. It's, it's, that's not, it's a voice to parliament and the executive government. They will have the right to provide advice and recommendations directly to the government. Exactly what that means, no one knows. But that creates the situation where government decisions, whether it's a mining permit, whether it's some other decision, they will be able to challenge on the basis that their advice wasn't followed or their advice wasn't taken into account. Now, initially, one of, the, one of the authors of that Langdon Karma report, Marsha Langdon, she was saying, oh, it'll be non-justiciable. Well, just today, she's not only saying, well, yes, of course, the voice will have a right to, to, to challenge um, these things in the, in the courts, but people who say it shouldn't are racist. So they're already saying the voice will have the power, the legal power under administrative law to challenge government decisions. The final one is constitutional power. Now, our High Court over the past 30 years has found numerous rights and powers that are not set out in the Constitution, just waiting there to be discovered by them that grant new rights and powers. How long before the voice to parliament is held to, in fact, have some sort of veto power over various government decisions. Yeah, well, I'm convinced. I think it's going to be three from three within a couple of years. Now, just to, just, just to confirm that we are heading in the same direction that New Zealand is already at, in your research, you dug up a tweet from Anthony Albanese posted on February 6, 2020, which said, and I quote, we can learn a lot from our mates across the ditch about reconciliation with First Nations people. New Zealand has led the way. It's time for Australia to follow. It's time to support the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, could he be any more explicit that he wants to take us in the same direction, catastrophic direction, that New Zealand's in? John. Well, well that, that's the ultimate answer to people who say, oh, well, New Zealand's different, their Waitangi Treaty is different to our constitution and, and, and things work a little different over there. That is true, there are differences, but they are the path that Anthony Albanese wants us to follow. So the IPA simply had a look at where that path leads us to and it leads, it leads us, in the words of some activists, to a country that can be described as an ethnostate. Yeah, and co-governed in the most catastrophic, in the most chaotic way. Now, as they did with the same-sex marriage plebiscite, I suspect many Australian voters are contemplating voting yes, in the hope that this will just put reconciliation to bed once and for all. What's your advice to those people? 
read the statement from the heart, the Uluru statement from the heart. It's very clear what the proponents of this voice, this constitutional change want. In that one-page document, the Uluru statement from the heart, they say they want um, recognition of Indigenous sovereignty. They want a voiced parliament. That's what we're debating at the moment. They want this truth and treaty process. So truth will be some sort of, you know, truth Orwellian process of the government establishing the, the, what the, the truth of our history should be, as if anything could ever be established like that. Yeah, it won't treaty. Be, what I just, I just treaty got, got a butt in there, though. There won't be any truth about what life was like before <laughs> white settlement, that's for sure. Anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll, it'll, it'll be a, a narrative of victim and villains only, yeah. and I think you know which category um, you or I probably fit into. Um, then there's this treaty. That treaty will probably establish... Um, joint sovereignty of some sort, maybe reparations and, and money grabs, we don't know, and probably some process similar to New Zealand of, um, of co-governance. And, and, and so this isn't, this isn't the end of the process. This isn't, this isn't the final step in reconciliation where, you know, we just recognise uh, Indigenous people in the constitution, we can bring all this sorry episode to a close and move forward united. This is the first step in a process of radically changing our constitutional arrangements. And how much damage will those changes wreak, do you think? Well, as well as those three changes, just the voice alone is a fundamental change to our constitutional system. It enshrines potentially forever. I mean, a constitution is meant to govern the country indefinitely it enshrines racial difference as a fundamental aspect of our nation because it's not just recognition of Indigenous people, that, that there might be some merit in that. Some, most Australians may, may um, be on board with that. But it gives rights, the right to advise the parliament, advise the government. I mean, that's a huge power based only on ancestry. And that is a fundamental change to our system, but it's the first step towards this treaty truth. And the Prime Minister has said in the next term of office, should he win re-election, he is proposing a constitutional uh, a vote on a referendum on um, the Republic. I dare say in that time, if we've had the voice and this, this other stuff, our flag will be, you know, redesigned. We are talking the space of a couple of terms of a Labor government, fundamental changes to our constitutional and legal system. Um, one, one person, one vote, the rule of law, um, and who knows what model of republic we would get under that situation. We're on the cusp of some quite radical changes. Yeah, and each of those changes is open to, uh, you know, misuse, <laughs> to put it politely, and uh, definitely not a step towards unifying the country, I'd argue. Now, just finally, John, just to talk about you for a second, you spent 20 years as a lawyer and recently joined the IPA to get, uh, get stuck into the culture wars. What was the attraction <laughs> to you, John? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd, I'd worked for 20 years in pretty much the same segment of the markets of taxation law. I, I felt a little bit of a change. Um, as a business owner during COVID, it, it was a stressful time. 
Um, I sympathise a lot with other small business owners. And although I you know, would always sort of describe my personal politics of, of being somewhat sort of right of centre, I, I was never particularly politically engaged, I wouldn't say. But um, I've just, I, I just felt during COVID the, the fundamental inroads into our freedoms and liberties, it, it made me open my eyes and, and I wanted to play, play a role in in pushing back against that and, and preserving our way of life. I, I describe myself as a, as a classical liberal. Um, rule of law, um, we've, we've, we've got a fantastic constitutional system that served us very well and it's under threat. We, we, it is indeed, and you are playing a very good role judging by your research so far. So keep it up, John. I hope there's more people like you. John Story, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's a former lawyer, John Story, who now works as a research fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs, and his reports can be found at ipa.org.au. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at ADHTVAUS. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more by going to ADH.TV or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.